0: Wait and see how the matter turns out. That was Naomi's advice to her daughter-in-law, Ruth, and how the third chapter of the book of Ruth ends. Leading up to this, we have followed the trajectory of these ladies' lives in a decidedly downward <laughs> arc as they dealt with the grief over the loss of their husbands, Naomi also the loss of her sons. Desperate to survive, the two, Ruth and Naomi, make the dangerous journey from the land of Moab back to Bethlehem. The word had spread that the Lord was blessing the people there with food. Would the Lord bless them? They returned at harvest time, and Ruth went to the fields to glean, which is a nice way of saying to pick up after the harvesters what was left over Trying to get by on that sort of gleaning would be like you or I hoping to live from the income that we might secure from walking the roads of Hancock County and picking up cans and bottles. But in the field, Ruth met the field's owner, a man named Boaz. Boaz was a kind man. He was kind to her. And it turns out he was a relative of Naomi's deceased husband, Elimelech. This man, Boaz, who we noted in an earlier message, had many of the characteristics of Jesus and so foreshadows him, gave Ruth access to his crops so she could provide for her mother-in-law and for herself. It was an unexpected kindness, an unexpected kindness on the part of Ruth, but not unexpected to God, who providentially had arranged the whole thing. And it signals a turn in the lives of Ruth and Naomi. Life was becoming a little bit easier. And for the first time in a long time, it was becoming a little more worth living. Naomi saw a possibility for something more than an owner-servant relationship between Boaz and her daughter-in-law, Ruth. So she instructed Ruth to go to the threshing floor where Boaz would be processing the harvest. And in essence, she directs Ruth to propose to Boaz. That's what's happening on the threshing floor. Very forward. Very forward. Now, Ruth seeks refuge under the wings of Boaz, you remember that from last week, a kinsman redeemer, but would she find the rest in the home that she was looking for? Ruth's was a proposal that Boaz understood and was willing to accept, but it came with a condition. The law of a Leverite marriage was in place to ensure the perpetuation of a family's name and lineage. And relatives were obligated to care for widows, and in some cases that would mean marrying them with the intention of having children with them to keep the family line alive. When Naomi's husband Elimelech died, and her two sons Malon and Kilian died as well, that line ended. But the introduction of Boaz to the story brings a spark of hope. But only a spark because, of course, there's a twist. There is a relative nearer to Naomi than Boaz. And by the custom, the opportunity to serve as kinsman-redeemer, to become Ruth's husband instead of Boaz, to exert a claim on the family land, was his right, a right that he could exercise. And that's where Pastor Mike left off last week in chapter 3, on the edge of this cliffhanger, really. Two widows, Naomi and Ruth, both eager to find refuge and rest, Now waiting and wondering on two fronts. Will the nearer relative become the Redeemer? Will Boaz follow through on the pledge he made to Ruth at the threshing floor and pursue her to be his wife? Father, as we turn now and earnest to your word, we are amazed by this prospect that words penned so long ago are relevant to us this day, and yet we know they are. for they tell your grand story, a part of it. Miraculously, we're part of the same story. So God, as we seek to understand what you have for, this, for us this day, we pray that the message would be clear and that we would receive it as you intend, amen. So the scene in chapter 4 opens at the city gate. We don't have any city gates around here. You, you, you know, If you ever did see a city gate, it was probably a, a symbolic sort of city gate. But that's not what this is. This is a literal city gate. And we can hardly envision what that would look like. We can hardly appreciate the location living as we do in communities without walls. I think the closest that I can tell you about the City Gate is an experience that I had many years ago when I when I was uh, able to go out on one of our offshore offshore islands to do some hunting. And I don't know if you ever have lived on an offshore island or visited an offshore island, but there's a particular culture in every island, right? And I'm not going to tell you which island this was, but it wasn't Swans Island. I'll tell you that. <laughs> But it, it was one of our offshore islands, and they, they do have their own culture, right? I mean, you go out there, you get off the ferry, you drive around, all of a sudden, everybody's waving at you. Did you ever have that experience on the island? Hey, you must think I'm somebody else. Hey, how's it going? No, no, it's what you do. You have to wave. If you don't wave, you'd be in trouble. And you also know who lives on an island, because when you get off the ferry and you're driving, somebody's still waving at you, and you're kind of saying, no, we don't do that over here, you know? That, We're not that kind of people. Every island has its own culture. Every every island has its own way. And I was staying. A pastor over there said, yeah, you can hunt over here. Come on over. Bunk out in the church. No problem. Okay. So I get up. It's early in the morning, and I want to go get a cup of coffee. So I walk across the street to the store. And maybe you've seen this in Maine, the old general store, right? And at the back, of course, the coffee's at the back. The coffee's at the back of this store. And you know what else is at the back? There's a wood stove back there. You know what's around the wood stove? All the elders of the island. Yeah, they probably get up at three, maybe two. I don't know. It was early, but they were all there. And they're all sitting there having their coffee, gathered around the wood stove, deciding the issues of the day. That's what's happening. And trust me, did you ever walk into a place where you didn't feel welcome right off the (laughs) bat? That was one of those places where every head turns snaps around to see me, and I'm thinking, I just want coffee. I'm not... I won't even shoot your deer. Just leave me alone. Just don't kill me and bury me out here. That's the culture. That's the city gate in an island. It's the city gate here in Bethlehem because it's not. It's the place where all the affairs of the day were settled. They didn't have a city hall. They didn't have a county courthouse. Everybody went to the gate. So the judicial affairs are uh, settled there. The business uh, is, is conducted there. That's where we find ourselves as we open up Ruth chapter 4. We are at the city gate. Boaz, it says, went up to the gate. And he went up to the gate as, as a man on a mission. He'd made a pledge the night before, and he was following through, right? And he hopes, he hopes by going to the gate that he's going to encounter the kinsman who is first in line to redeem Naomi and Ruth. And in verse 1 we read, Behold, the Redeemer came by. Wow, what do you know? This is the same word, behold. It's noteworthy. The same word, right? Used when Boaz went out to his field. And behold. And we talked about that before. That we get the sense of, wow, what a coincidence. And this is no coincidence at all. This is providence. God is working. The insinuation here is, is, is exactly the same thing. God who sees ahead. God, who knows everything, has arranged this. He's in control of all the details. He led Boaz to the field and Ruth to the field at the same time so that they could meet up. He's led Boaz to the gate. He's led this prospective redeemer to the gate. They're coming to the same place at the same time. So so Boaz says, well, go ahead, friend, and have a seat. We never learned this guy's name. It's an interesting thing, like an omission. You might not pick up on it in your reading through, but we don't know his name. Well, it's pretty interesting to not know the name of somebody in such a short book where all the names have great meaning. Just think that through. He was not meant to be preserved in any wonderful way, this guy. We don't know who he is. He's an unnamed redeemer. And Boaz just says... And your translation of the ESV may say, sit, sit down, friend. And it really translates more literally as to Mr. So-and-so. It's kind of like a nebulous thing. Like, yeah, whatever your face is, sit down. <laughs> Boaz wouldn't have been that rude. I'm sorry. But that's what it translates in, because we're not supposed to know this guy's name. It doesn't matter. He sits down. The elders sit down as well. And what we have here in this opening scene is the formation of a village court. That's what's going on. It's a village court. And and Boaz explains the situation then. He says to the redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you'll redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know. For there's no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. So it's worth noting here, remember, all this is taking place in the period, the time of the judges. And that was a time where it had seemed that the faithful had vanished from among the children of men. That there were no godly people. That's what it felt like, that's what it sounded like. People had forgotten God, a whole generation And so they weren't interested really in doing what God wanted. They were interested in doing what they want. In fact, twice in the book of Judges, it tells us everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So everyone was a law unto themselves. Everyone justified their own behavior by saying, it's good for me. And yet, let's look. Boaz, rather than doing what's right in his own eyes, rather than doing what he really wants to do, sets out to do what's right in God's eyes. And in the eyes of God's law. So look, look, while the majority of people in that day were doing as they pleased to help themselves, Boaz remained faithful to doing life God's way. So I want that to be an encouragement to you. Because as Christians in this culture that we live in today, you are swimming upstream, if I might mix my metaphors. But you're up against it. It's not an easy thing to do. And you might, you might be convinced as you look around and say, well, everybody else has gone to pieces. What difference does it make how I live? Why should I bother to continue to uphold the standards of God? Listen, brothers and sisters, I want this to be an encouragement to you. You live in a time when, when at least in this country, godliness seems to be passe that the, the truth of the word of God is out of vogue. It's even suspect. Sometimes people hear that you're a Christian and they automatically will think less of you. That wasn't the case 100 years ago. That wasn't the case 50 years ago. It is easy. It is acceptable in many circles and sometimes commendable in others to defy the will and ways of God and simply to fulfill your own selfish desires to do what pleases or benefits you without regard or care for how it's going to impact others how it will affect the lives of those around you that you are committed to. Think about this. How many times have you heard it? Just you be you. That's the advice. You be you. Well, what if me being me hurts that person? That's their problem. You be you. That's the mentality then. That's the mentality now. And Boaz could have just struck up a deal. You know he could have. He's a wealthy guy, right? So he didn't have to follow the rules, he could have struck a backroom deal with this nearer relative. He could have bought him off. He very easily could have said, listen, you clearly value money. Here, Some go away and pretend you don't exist so that I can do what I want. But he didn't. All of that would have been underhanded. All of that would have been sneaky. It would have undermined his reputation. It would have compromised his standing in the town forever. And that's not the kind of person that Boaz was and it's not the kind of person that he wanted to become. And so he resists the temptation to take matters into his own hands and he demonstrates his trust in God through his obedience to God's word. Someone has said it and I think it's always apt, right? There's never a wrong time to do the right thing. There's never a wrong time to do the right thing. Do the right thing. Boaz does the right thing. He upholds the law of God. You're wondering what to do in your life today? You're at some sort of crossroads? Ask yourself that question What's the right thing? What is the right thing? Of course, there's always a chance when we choose to do the right thing that it leads to the wrong result. And by wrong, I don't mean morally wrong, I mean the result that we don't want. Right? And that's part of the issue. We think, but if I do it the way that you want me to do it, God, I'm not going to get what I want. That's what we think. That's how, that's how our brains work. But listen, you will be confronted with choices every day to do what is right or what is wrong. Listen, you, me, we can do what is right because as people of faith, we know God will too. In other words, you don't have to worry about the outcome. You can do what is right because God will do what is right with you, for you, in you, through you. That's the way God is, and you can count on it. So, back to the story: will this unnamed man be the kinsman redeemer, or won't he? The suspense is real, it's meant to be real. We lose a little bit if we don't read these narratives all at once, don't we? It's it's sort of like coming in at a point in the story but not knowing what happened before. You've got to read it, but as you read it in full, this is a a suspenseful moment. This is the hinge. Everything's going to happen right here. Is this guy going to step up and and be Ruth's husband or, or not? And the nearer relative responds, yes, I'll redeem it. Right? And the thoughtful reader, the sensitive reader who gets what's going on here says, No! No! You can't do that. That's why some people would give you this advice, right? They say, Never ask a question you don't know the answer to. Or if you don't want to know the answer, don't ask. Either way, because when you ask a question, you might get something that you don't want. And look, we don't want this. This is not the answer that anybody wants to hear, not the possibility that we want to entertain. This story here takes a turn, right here takes a turn, that no one really wants it to take. This twist and this tension is somewhat akin to the inevitable part in every single Hallmark movie ever made. (laughs) You know it's getting near to Christmas, don't you? (laughs) When you walk in the house and you look at the screen and you see the little Cigna Hallmark. (laughs) Oh, fantastic. In every single Hallmark movie ever made, there is something that happens that puts the... Well, it's obvious to you who belongs with who, right? Let's just get that straight. We know that, and in every single one of them, something happens that puts that relationship at risk. That's the plot, folks. I I can write this movie. You can write this movie. That's the plot. Something happens. Usually it's a misunderstanding, which we know, but she doesn't, right? So here we are at this place where this is developing this this way, and the redeemer says, yeah, I'll redeem it, and we, we, we scream like we do with the TV, no! We scream at the page, no, not him, not him! He's not the one for you! You don't want the guy in the executive suit with a nice car, he's a liar! You want the guy in the flannel shirt who's walking in the snow! Yeah, not him! That's where we're at. That's where we're at in this story. Not him. Because we want Ruth and Boaz to get together. And we want Ruth and Boaz to be happily married. And to have little Ruth's and Boaz's all over the place. That's what we want. Am I lying? I'm not lying. Maybe that's not going to happen though. Oh, this, guy, this guy's first in line. And he's heard the deal. And he thinks it's a pretty lucrative deal for him. Why wouldn't I redeem this? I get this piece of land and I get it free and clear and and there are no strings attached and Naomi has no heirs who can step up and claim it. So it's going to be mine and there's no one that I even have to return it to in the year of Jubilee every 50 years as the land reverted back to original owners. This was a good deal. Yeah, I'll take it. But then Boaz gives him the rest of the story. If you acquire this land, As a redeemer, you're also gonna become responsible for Ruth and it's gonna be your responsibility to see that an heir is born through Ruth and that the family name is perpetuated and that the family land stays in the family. And all that is enough to get this unnamed fellow to change his mind. It's more than he bargained for. And so, so impetuously, he said, yes, I will redeem it. And we all stepped back and thought, oh, that can't happen. But now, he says, I've changed my mind. I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now, at that point, the author, verse 7, takes us on a little bit of an aside. and says, Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel, I don't know what to tell you about that. <laughs> That's the strangest thing I've read in a long time. And there's really not a lot of commentary about it, because I think because of its ancient origins, it's really lost. In fact, by the time that this is written, what the author says, now this was the custom in former times, which means we've outgrown the sandal exchange tradition. And now, personally, I can think of four or five real good reasons not to give somebody your sandal. But I don't know why, I don't know what this is. And nobody really does, except to say this is how we used to signify a transaction. And the best we can come up with here is that that it is a representation of somebody figuratively taking their foot off of what would rightfully be theirs. It's just a way of saying, I'm stepping off, I'm stepping out. I am acknowledging or relinquishing, actually, my right to this, whatever it was, goods, exchanging property, whatever it was, and I'm giving it to you. And I'm doing that in a public way so that everybody will see it. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal, and that's that. There it is. The nearer relative relinquishes his ownership, Boaz is the kinsman redeemer. The elders and all the people around the gate by now have have witnessed the proceedings. And we might say in our vernacular, okay, the deed has been executed, the transaction has been notarized, and it's heading to the registry to be filed. It's official. Boaz did what was right. It was a risk, but Boaz did what was right And he did it in the right way. He did what was right and guess what? So did God. So did God. You can do what is right because God will do what is right. That's what it is to live by faith. That's what faith is. If you can't do what is right, trusting that God does what is right, you don't have faith. You can do it. Because God is faithful. And here we see that the questions present at the beginning of the chapter have been answered. Will or won't the nearer relative be the kinsman redeemer? He won't. Will Boaz make good on the pledge that he made to Ruth at the threshing floor and pursue her to be his wife? He will. And he does. Where does that mean, though? Where does it leave us? We might begin by answering and asking another question. What has changed, for who, and how? We have come a long way through this little book from an inconsolable loneliness in Moab to the cusp of marital joy in Israel. We have come a long way from the uninvited sentence of widowhood and childlessness to the genuine prospect of companionship and a family. From empty cupboards in an enemy land to an abundance of bread in Bethlehem. Would you have thought any of this possible by reading the first five or six verses of chapter 1? We were at the bottom there. We have come a long way from years of restlessness to the promise of rest. And for Ruth, specifically, from an outsider to an insider... From a come-from-away to one of us, from a stranger to a citizen, from a foreigner to a family member. We have come a long way in this story that takes place over the span of many years. From lives moving in a decidedly downward arc to rock bottom, to lives moving in an undeniably upward arc to realize hopes from an existence that was going from bad to worse to one that is going from good to great. We are seeing serious reversals of fortunes at the hand of God over time because he is good. Reversals for Naomi and for Ruth as the story unfolds. And friends, we have not come to the best part. We we have not come to the best part. It truly, truly gets better than this. But not today. (laughs) Lord, well, in two weeks from today, we finish up this brief journey through the book of Ruth. And you will see, if you are here, I pray you will be, you will see that for all those dear ladies went through, And all the struggle that they had, the best was yet to come. You will see it. For now, let's leave off with this. One part, one of many lessons, and there are many in this little book, but one is for us to keep in mind at all times, is that God is working. Don't lose sight of that, friend. It may, may, may not look like he is working. It may not feel like he is working. But there's, it's undeniable from chapter 1 to chapter 4 in the book of Ruth that God is at work. Very often behind the scenes, and that's okay if, that's, if he chooses to remain anonymous that way for a time. But do understand this, that God is working always. The psalmist declares this, he who keeps you will not slumber He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Do you know our God is always on? He is never asleep at the switch. (laughs) Right? And here's the thing. It's not just that nothing gets by him, beloved. It's that everything goes through him. (laughs) That's right. That's important. It's not just that nothing gets by him. Everything goes through him. He has his eye on you, and he loves you. And somebody has made this claim, which we do well to receive, I think. Even in our pain, God is plotting for our good. Even in our pain, God is plotting for our good. Because he is for us, God is plotting for our good. The God who did not spare his... Because you may say, well, how do I know that is true? How do I know that is true? Well, the book of Romans will give it to you just... Here's where we'll end. The God who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us. It says will abundantly, is willingly and abundantly able to supply everything you need. Our Father, we thank you and we praise you for this promise. Uh, We thank you for this direct line that we see, God, in your word from your Old Testament to your new. You are the same God forever and ever, unchanging and beautiful. We thank you for this story of redemption and the promise that we receive this day. We pray that we are heartened to do the right thing because we know that you will do the right thing. Father, we praise you and thank you for your presence here, changing our hearts, changing our lives, changing our minds And God, we ask that you simply accompany us into deeper worship as we sing with you and sing to you in Christ's name. Amen.